0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy?
1: I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're talking with advocates seeking to influence companies and governments to do more to combat climate change. Our guests apply pressure from outside and inside corporations, from disrupting fossil fuel auctions and hanging off a bridge to privately collaborating with oil companies inside the halls of power. The goal is to create a faster transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. Over the next hour, we'll hear stories of fighting and partnering with fossil fuel companies and include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're joined by three guests. Tim DeChristopher is founder of the Climate Disobedience Center. He spent 21 months in federal prison for disrupting an auction for oil and gas leases near Canyonlands National Park in Utah. Georgia Hursty is a national warehouse program manager with Greenpeace, In 2015, she suspended herself off the St. John's Bridge in Portland in an attempt to block a Shell oil rig traveling to the Arctic. Brendan Steele is Director of Stakeholder Engagement with Future 500, a group that builds bridges between companies and their adversaries. Please welcome them to Climate One. Tim DeChristopher, uh, let's begin with you. Uh, you heard, you were a college student and you heard Terry Root, uh, give a talk about climate change and that changed your life. How?
2: Um, well that, I was studying climate change quite a bit at that point and had been an activist, uh, to some degree for a long time. But after her talk, Terry sort of was honest with me in a way that she wasn't honest with the audience. Uh, she had presented the IPCC data up to that point and, and showed their scenarios for for carbon emissions for the 21st century um, with the best-case scenario peaking around 2030 and coming back down. And I went up to her afterwards and, and said, but didn't the most recent report you guys put out say that if emissions didn't peak by around 2015 and start coming back down that we were pretty much all screwed? And, and she said, yeah, that's right. Um, and I said, what am I missing here? And she said you're not missing anything. There's there's no scenario in, on the table in which we avoid all the worst-case consequences that, that we're looking at. And she literally put her hand on my gen, on my shoulder and said, I'm sorry, my generation failed yours. Um, and so it was it was incredibly rattling um, and, and did kind of push me into a dark period of despair, but it was also a period of grieving um, and letting go of a lot of what I was holding on to which also opened up a new kind of gratitude um, and, and deeper connection with the things that, that I loved about our world and the people that I loved that I was willing to fight for. Uh, and so it, it really motivated me to a new level of commitment and, and willingness to make sacrifices.
1: Let's uh, hear a video from that next chapter. Uh, Tim DeChristopher went into a next stage of activism. This is a trailer for a f- documentary about Tim DeChristopher's life called Bitter 70. I have two and a quarter in the back and not a two and a half. Two and a half, you did two. Thank you. I'd have three and a half. Not-
2: they said, Hi, are you here for the auction? And I said, Yes, I am. And they said, Are you here to be a bidder? And I said, Well, yes, I am. So, bidder number 70. Bitter 70. An environmentalist threw a controversial oil and gas lease auction into turmoil today. Well, Tim DeChristopher says he's willing to go to jail, and it's possible that's where he'll wind up. A college
3: student may face federal criminal charges for disrupting that auction with bogus bids.
1: Actually, winning a dozen bids in a row worth nearly $2 million. <laughs> Christopher, DeChristopher, take us to that moment. You go to that auction and you going in. What was your intent and what was your feeling at that moment where you're walking up to that auction?
2: Well, my, my intent was to stand in the way of that auction in any way that I could. I'd been studying social movement history and realizing that the climate movement at that time didn't really look anything like the successful social movements in our history because it was so focused on appeasing our current power structures and trying to make itself non-threatening. And I saw that... Successful social movements have always pressured those in power and made them uncomfortable um, and and using techniques like civil disobedience and things like like that. So um, it, it only took me about 20 minutes or half an hour or so once I was sitting in the auction and saw the opportunities that I had to make that decision. And I was just sort of looking at the situation, saying, if I do this, I'll probably go to prison for two or three years. Could I live with that? And I thought, yeah, I could I could live with that. Um, but if I if I don't do this and I pass up this opportunity and and thirty, forty years down the road, you know, I'm I'm meeting a young person who was born into a broken world and, and I knew that I had an opportunity to possibly do something about it and I didn't take it, could I live with that? And and that's where eventually I, I had to say, no, I really couldn't live with that and, and I've gotta act here.
1: So you were prosecuted uh, for a couple of federal crimes, uh, and then you you went to prison. Uh, did you convert any people to climate advocates when you were in prison? And, uh, <laughs> um, um,
2: you know, there there was a guy in the in the bunk next to me that was a coal miner from Vernal, Utah, um, and uh, and he only had one lung, so I think he already had some grievances <laughs> against the coal industry. Um, but uh, I think I. I think I shifted his views a little bit about what kind of people stand up against the, the fossil fuel industry. Um, you know, and, and uh, a lot of the, the conversations that I had with folks in prison and and some of the prison activism that I did on the inside wasn't really focused on, on climate change. It was focused on a lot of the issues that, that people were dealing with in their lives, either on the outside or on the inside, working on uh, addressing the prison healthcare system or... Um, the education system in there, and that sort of thing.
1: Then you you're out now. You've been out for a little bit. Uh, you're still on probation. Tell us about your reentry, getting out, and, and were you radicalized in prison, or I guess you maybe were radicalized before you went in? But well,
2: I'd say I was further radicalized in prison. Um, I think it deepened a lot of my social justice perspectives and and made real some things that I knew intellectually, you know, i like, I'd read the new Jim Crow before I went into prison and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I kind of like knew some of the facts. Um, but, but it made those facts much more personal when I was spending two years with, with some of the most oppressed people in our society. Um, so I think it, it deepened, um, my understanding of that. It, uh, it deepened my understanding of systemic evil and uh, and I think that really radicalized me and made me more of a revolutionary. Um, and and so by the time I got out, um, I I was able to consider myself a prison abolitionist and um, and could re- could firmly stand by that position. And and once I understood that lens of of how our current prison system is never gonna become the kind of justice system that we need, and we need to build that justice system from scratch based on our values um, and our community resources, uh, and our current prison system actually needs to be abolished. Once I understood that, that gave me a lens to then understand the struggle against fossil fuels, where so many people say, oh, but we still need energy. It it helped me to see that the fossil fuel industry is never gonna become the, the kind of clean energy system that we need. Um, that we're going to have to build that system from scratch and the fossil fuel industry should be abolished. So it was actually my understanding of the struggle against mass incarceration in the prison system that helped me to be able to stand by a position of saying that I'm a fossil fuel abolitionist.
1: And you're on probation. You weren't able to go to Paris because of that. Uh, Can you envision getting arrested again?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Very, very easily. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> Georgia Hursty, uh, you were in Los Angeles when Hurricane Katrina hit. And what did you do?
4: I was working for KPFK, which is a Pacifica free speech radio station. And after watching the news and seeing the kind of blatant racism that was coming across the airwaves, myself and two of my colleagues got in a, um, in a vehicle and drove to New Orleans. And at the time, there were only, they were only letting in media, they weren't yet letting in volunteers. Um, and so we spent the first week after the storm, we got there three days after the storm hit, collecting stories from locals and spending the the time with them and having them show us what they were going through and what they were dealing with and seeing the racism firsthand. Um, and for me, at the time I'd been working, I'd already been an activist, particularly working with race, class, and gender and mainstream politics. And the work... That week, and then I went back to New Orleans for about two years with volunteers and working with different um, groups down there, seeing really the kind of interplay between the climate justice movement and race, class, and gender, and how those things really are unable to be separated. The other thing I learned in New Orleans was uh, what direct action actually looked like. And, you know, from... People at the get-go refusing to leave, despite being told by the military and by police officers that they weren't allowed to stay. People resisted, they stayed, they had camps on the roofs, even though the seventh ward was still flooded, the ninth ward was flooded for almost a month afterward. Um, and then that continued for years where people would stand you know toe to toe with bulldozers to protect the houses down there. so it really kind of formed um, my understanding of direct action and the way that I The narrative that I understand environmentalism from and environmental justice.
1: And you were then later also prosecuted for some federal crimes involving oil.
4: Right. So in 2010, the BP BP spill happened, uh, which again, devastated communities. So you see the, the interplay again between like what it's doing to our environment, what it's doing to the ocean, and then also just how it's ravaging communities and the places that are most affected by the that by climate change and by environmental degradation are the places that tend to be people of color and lower income places. So you see very much that that connection exists. So we did an action um, against the Harvey Explorer, which was contracted by Shell to go drill in the Arctic later, in that, later that summer in 2010, and boarded the vessel that was in Port Fouchon in southern Louisiana and painted on the bow of the ship with oil from the BP spill, Arctic Next, question mark. And it was at the same time that Ken Salazar was in Louisiana assessing the damage from the BP spill. So we were, all seven of us were charged with two felonies um, with a maximum of 12 years. And the next day, Ken Salazar announced that he was putting a moratorium on Arctic drilling for a year, um, which was great. (laughs) There, there have been few moments in my direct action experience where there's been that immediate of a, <laughs> of a result. Um, those charges was about a year and a half long legal battle, and we took a plea eventually.
1: Tim to Christopher, uh, you refused a plea. Yeah, why?
2: Um, th- there were several reasons. Um, you know, first off, I, I feel like a trial is, is a great organizing opportunity that gives you a public platform to continue the same kind of public narrative that you were making in the action itself. Um, there was, there was, uh, um, you know, in my mind, the plea bargain does three things. It, um, it concentrates power in the hands of judges and prosecutors. It, it eliminates the role of the public in the justice system. Um, and it resolves things quickly and quietly out of the public eye. Um, And and I think all three of those things um, are kind of antithetical to what we're generally standing for as activists that um, are looking for more democratic participation, more civic engagement, um, more distributed kinds of power. Um, Then what I also understood after I was actually in prison and talked to a lot of other folks who had been pressured into plea bargains was also that plea bargains are are the technical means for mass incarceration. It's, It's the way in which we can funnel that many people through the the justice system every year. Um, so, you know, I think all of those are, are kind of cases against plea bargains, but you know, I've also seen the tremendous organizing potential for trials as as a new organizing platform. Um, you know, that was certainly the case in in uh, my own trial and all the organizing that went into
1: that over the course of two and a half years. Georgia Hurstie, uh you then, after that uh, incident in the Gulf, you went to Portland, you arrive at the St. John's Bridge in the middle of the night. So tell us about that moment, how you felt. You get there, it's dark, and you're going to jump off a bridge.
4: <laughs> well, the... The whole, people have been organizing against Shell for decades, and the summer, just before Portland, we were in Seattle, and there was a really amazing coalition of groups and locals and folks in Seattle that were organizing against the Polar Pioneer, Um, the Shell's drilling rig that was, had already, and at that moment that I was about to jump over a bridge, was in the Arctic waiting, waiting to drill. So there was a lot of you know there was a lot of momentum already building around the campaign, and the, you know the the chance that we had in Portland was really just um, being able to seize the moment because the Fenica had run aground. Um, there were no, there hadn't been plans for it to be in Portland, and so uh, we were really able to kind of capture that moment. So on the bridge, um, before I stepped over. You know, thinking about the whole context of the campaign and the chance that we had, knowing that we'd found a choke point, knowing that Shell couldn't drill as long as we could prevent the Fenneca from leaving Portland, um, was a pretty inspiring and moment. And fortunately, it was dark, and I couldn't see how far away the water was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so 13 people go over. Uh, you have a marine radio, and then you see the Fenneca and a drawbridge lifting. It's coming towards you. Take us to that moment.
4: Right, so we were 13 people across the span of the St. John's Bridge, and we were about 70 feet apart from each other because the, the, the Fenneca at its widest point is 85 feet, so it was enough with 13 people to prevent it from going through at any point. When the Fenneca came towards us, you know, the I don't know exactly the distance between that drawbridge, but it steamed right up to us, and I hailed the Fenneca on the radio and said... Um, in maritime protocol, but this is the activists under the bridge, and you were on a collision course, and you 're putting people 's lives at risk, please stop and they eventually radioed back and said, "This is the feneca we 're not going to stop, so move so, something like that and Then I repeated my message. we obviously weren 't in a position where we could move and then they confirmed that they had stopped, and you could see that the ship had stopped and no longer had a wake. Um, But there was this moment that seemed like kind of forever where everyone was waiting with bated breath. You know, the water was filled with kayakers. There were the activists on the bridge. And though we couldn't speak or talk to each other, we were too far apart. You could feel the kind of the tension in that moment while everyone was waiting to see what the Fenneca would do. And whatever time in reality passed, I don't know, eternity (laughs) passed. And then the Fenneca slowly started to... To turn around, and when it got about ninety degrees in the other direction, you just heard before I even could react, you could hear the uproars of cheering from uh, from the quayside and from the water, and then it turned all the way around and went back to back to its port.
1: and uh, not long after that, shell announced that they were uh, <laughs> temporarily for the foreseeable future, suspending their operations in the Gulf. Uh, I contacted Shell for their comment on this, whether uh, this incident, what impact it had on their operations, and this is from a Shell spokeswoman, quote, Our decision to cease further exploration activity offshore Alaska for the foreseeable future was due to the drilling of a dry hole, high costs, and an unpredictable regulatory environment. While we respect the views of these those who oppose Arctic exploration, opposition to our projects in this Northwest US did not play a role in that decision. That's Helen O'Connor from Shell Oil. Um, Brendan Steele, what do you think about that direct action against Shell? Was it the right approach to confront the company in that way, or was there another way?
3: I think it depends what your ultimate goals are, uh, what your asks of the company are. Uh, We say at Future 500 that we can't do our work unless the advocacy community does its work. We work inside a number of companies. We work with a number of companies to help them engage stakeholders. It's a jargony term. And we always aim to find common ground in that process. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. And our... Concern at times, uh, it, whether it 's a certain campaign or an overall strategic goal is what the main ask is and in this case with the with the oil and gas industry, we see that direct activism that civil disobedience has opened up the space for a price on carbon at the federal level. We feel that has been reopened in discussion with a number of companies, but that that ask is not being made in a way that brings it out and in fact uh, redoubling on parts of the oil and gas industry is actually closing them off to that possibility. There's a sense that the advocacy community is coming to them with, uh, with an ask of to cease to exist anymore, and that's not going to open up the room for dialogue.
1: Tim to Christopher, you want them to mm-hmm. cease to exist. You don't think that they're part of a transition, that they have to die and something green has to grow somewhere else?
3: Yeah
2: yeah I mean that's <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah i think I think that is the the position of of fossil fuel abolition that um, we actually need to keep fossil fuels in the ground, um, we need to build an energy economy that that actually works for people and for our communities and our society and for future generations um, And and the fossil fuel industry as it exists now um, doesn't have a role in that future. Um, I think that um, regardless of how big a role they might have played in our past, I think I think their time is done.
1: I mean, that gets an applause and, and it sounds good, but realistically, think about everyone in this room, everyone listening to this used fossil fuels today and will use fossil fuels tomorrow. And it's so deeply embedded. I mean, is that realistic that all of them can't play any role and that suddenly we're going to drive solar-powered cars? I haven't seen a solar-powered car yet. I mean, how realistic is that, Timothy Christopher?
2: I mean, I think 200 years ago, you could have said the exact same thing about slavery and the way that our entire economy was touched by slavery. And and you couldn't interact with our economy without in some way benefiting from slave labor. Um, And...
1: And the cost of getting off slavery was a lot less than people argued at the time. Robert Kennedy Jr. has written some articles about this. Uh, okay, the cost of getting off slavery was less than the slave owners that uh, argued yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and, and I think we, you know, we, have, we have solutions that um, are actually um, being resisted by the fossil fuel industry. That um, we, it's been, I think it's been clear that we cannot unleash the solutions that we have until the fossil fuel industry Gets out of the way um, that they're standing in the way of our progress, um, and that doesn't mean it's an overnight transition. It doesn't mean that the the fossil fuel industry is going to cease to exist tomorrow. Um, just like as a prison abolitionist, you know, I don't expect every prison to be bulldozed tomorrow and everybody released. Um, but it means that that's the goal that we're working towards, um, and that's our that's the vision um, of of a truly healthy and clean energy economy that doesn't involve fossil fuels
1: brendan Steele, uh doing away totally with fossil fuel companies no rule in the future what do you think
3: i think uh during our lifetime it's likely not going to happen i think that there that there is the uh possibility to negotiate with fossil fuel industry to create a system in which economies around the world eventually decarbonize. But I'm concerned that a a pipeline by pipeline, you know, train by train battle against the fossil fuel industry is a, a losing battle. And you can knock out the Exxons or the BPs of the world, but then you look at the state-owned oil companies, the Saudi Aramco's, the Gazprom's, uh, the Venezuelan state-owned oil company, and Compared to the Exxon Mobiles, those guys are—they are the giants, and they wield immensely more power, and I don't see them going away anytime
1: soon. Georgia Hursty, the Keystone XL pipeline was recently uh, rejected by President Obama. Uh, the environmental movement hailed that as a victory. The, uh, other people would say that that didn't make me feel good, but it doesn't keep any oil on the ground, because the oil that would have gone the pipeline is going on trains, is going on other pipelines. So what do you think? Was that a feel-good victory, or was that a real keep-it-in-the-ground victory?
4: I think that it was a victory. I think that... It's difficult to quantify the the full range of effectiveness of direct action and the work that people did fighting the Keystone XL pipeline. I think that direct action is often about empowering people and shifting the national and international narrative around these things and bringing things to the focal point of the national and international conversation and attention. And so you start to see these bigger shifts um, in the conversation in the way that people engage in people's general kind of paradigm. Um, about fossil fuels, about corporate power and influence. And so I think there were so many small and big actions in organizing around Keystone XL, and I think that it is absolutely a victory, in in addition to empowering an entire generation of people that are going to continue to take action, continue to organize, and continue to really stand toe-to-toe against the oil industries.
1: Tim Christopher, uh, Sean Penn's been in the news a lot lately for going and meeting with uh, El Chapo. And he admitted uh, to Charlie Rose that he had failed in his message. And what he was trying to say is that there's that there's a, a demi- supply and a demand, that th- supply is villainized and that there's also a demand that Americans are culpable, have a role in the failed r- war on drugs that, that Americans as consumers are part of the problem, not just bad Mexican drug lords, you know, transition that to fossil fuels, attacking supply rarely works. It has to be on the demand side. As long as there's demand, the supply will be there to meet it. And we are all part of the demand.
2: I think particularly in fossil fuels, I mean, I think this is true in most of our economy, but particularly in fossil fuels, what we have is a manufactured demand, We have a a company or an industry that uh, exercises immense power over our government to make sure that there's demand and and reaps massive subsidies to to distort that that market economy um, so that, you know, even though we're only paying a few dollars a gallon right now for gasoline, we're paying ten dollars a gallon at least in in our tax bill um, through subsidies. So, you know. You can work on trying to convince people to change their consumer behavior. um, But structurally, we're still giving massive support to the fossil fuel industry um, through our government. And and I think it has to be addressed at that level. We don't have a lot
1: of choices. The market's not giving us choices. Brendan Steele, right. It's kind of the markets rigged in favor of the fossil fuel companies.
3: I'm I'm certainly not going to argue against the power of the fossil fuel industry in the United States to to influence subsidies and things of that nature, but I think it takes away some of the, what I consider to be the the facts that fossil fuels are desirable for certain reasons. They have a certain amount of energy density. When you burn them, they produce a lot of energy. Batteries can't mimic that sort of energy density. They're easily transportable, whereas alternative forms of energy are not so... My concern is that even without the subsidies, those inherent qualities of fossil fuels make them a very attractive option. And even if you were to remove all the subsidies within Washington, D.C., remove the power of the oil industry, you still have a a global cartel, if you're looking at oil, for example. Saudi Arabia can adjust its output to the price it wants, drop the the price of oil, and if we got rid of the, the American oil companies the fossil fuel subsidies in Washington, that might be their their dream, because then they'd have control and the ability to drop the price so that our we couldn't say no.
1: Brendan Steele is a director of stakeholder engagement at future 500. Our other guests today at climate one are Georgia Hursty from Greenpeace and Tim DeChristopher, Christopher founder of the climate disobedience center. I'm Greg Dalton, uh, Tim DeChristopher, Christopher, you said you've studied social movements. Uh, recently we celebrated uh, Martin Luther King day. So how does the climate movement compare to civil rights, marriage equality, women's suffrage? What do you see there as a student of those movements?
2: Um, you know, one of the, the movement that, that I look to as an example most is the women's suffrage movement, um, in part because, you know, that from the time of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 um, until around 1910, 1913, 14, um, there was there was a little bit of tangible progress that they had made, but in terms of um major changes that they could hold up and say, we've made this progress. There was there was actually very little. Um, they had done, I think, a great deal of education over that time period, um, a great deal of subtle cultural shifts. Um, but but they had often approached their campaign, particularly um in the the time of like the 1890s to 1910. Um, with a kind of appeasement strategy of kind of begging for their rights rather than demanding their rights. And so they had built up this mass of, of the middle ground that said, yeah, maybe women should have more rights one day, but you know, we don't want to go too fast in that direction. And then <laughs> around 1914, a woman named Alice Paul came into leadership of the movement and, and she started saying, we shouldn't be begging for our rights. We should be demanding our rights. Um, and, and so she started leading the movement in much more confrontational strategies and doing things like sit-ins and demonstrations and protests in front of the White House and in front of the, the Capitol building uh, where women were getting beaten up by cops and dragged off the jail and doing hunger strikes in jail and presenting the nation with these really shocking images, especially for the time, um, and, and kind of forcing that, that comfortable middle ground into a choice. where where there was no longer this ground of, oh, yeah, maybe one day women should have some more rights. And and it was suddenly a choice between either immediate uh, suffrage, immediate rights to vote for women, or the continued violence and oppression of women, which was now clear that that was the status quo, that that was occurring, that that the sort of subtle violence of the denial of rights was, was now dramatized in the very clear violence against women in front of the Capitol. Um, and and so they forced the nation into the choice. And I think in part because of the decades of groundwork and public education that they had done, the nation came down on the side of suffrage and they were able to get a constitutional resolution uh, very quickly. And you know, I, I look at the last 30, 40 years of the history of the environmental movement that I think has done a lot of that public education work and built up a lot of that comfortable middle ground that says, yeah, clean water and clean air is important and we should do something about that fossil fuel problem one day. Um, you know, that I think we're in a position where if we presented the nation with a, enough of a shocking image that dramatized the reality of climate change, which is a form of violence and oppression against young people, and force the nation into a choice between either a, an immediate transition away from fossil fuels or the continued violence and oppression against young people, which is, is clearly what climate change is. Um, I do think that, that we're in a position where we could come down on the side of, of choosing to stand against the fossil fuel industry.
1: Because one of the challenges for climate is, is that people, it's hard to see victims of climate. Uh, Polar bears, glaciers are remote and far away for most people. It's not like uh, your friend who's gay who's in the closet or a woman who can't vote or an African-American person you like, right? It it doesn't have the human face that is the victim of climate. But I guess you're saying that every person under a certain age is the victim. Well, I mean,
2: I think, you know, So it's it's a form of generational oppression, and so that's always relative. So everyone who's now living is facing some negative impacts because of those who have come before us. And all of us are reaping great privilege at the expense of those who will come after us. Um, But part of the reason that there's not a better face on climate change is just the failure of our public leaders to do a better job of connecting the dots. You know, that one of the... One of the greatest humanitarian crises on the planet right now is happening from the refugees streaming out of Syria, and and the the terrorist groups like ISIS that have have formed out of that situation, which was a civil war that was largely triggered by a climate induced drought, according to the CIA. They list that as as the major factor that set off that situation. Um, you know, so when we look at the movements that. Um, that are really capturing a lot of public attention right now, like Black Lives Matter. I think they've done a better job of connecting the dots, so that when a a young black kid gets shot by by the cops, um, you know, it's the bullet that kills the kid, and yet our our public has been able to connect the dots enough to say that oh, that's not just the bullet that kills the kid. It's not just, this isn't just an issue about guns and this isn't just an issue about crime because police are involved, but this is a more structural systemic issue about white supremacy that pervades our whole society. Um, That actually, I think took a lot of work from a lot of activists trying to connect those dots um, over years and decades. Um, You know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's implicitly any harder to connect the dots between the kid who dies from a bullet in a civil war in Syria to the climate change that triggered that situation. Um, I just think it takes that much effort of um, public leaders that that are willing to tell that story and connect those dots.
1: Tim DeChristopher is founder of the Climate Disobedience Center. I'd like to go to our lightning round with a quick uh, yes or no, true or false question for each of our guests, Uh, starting with Georgia Hursty. Melting glaciers and struggling polar bears are not convincing images for most Americans who will never see a glacier or a polar bear in person. True or false? True. Tim DeChristopher, the Paris Climate Agreement is an important step towards stabilizing the planet and the economy. False. Um, Tim DeChristopher, President Obama will have a legacy as a climate leader. Yes or no? False. Georgia Hursty?
4: False.
1: Uh, Brendan Steele Fossil fuels have brought humans out of the dark ages and lifted millions of people out of poverty. True or false? That was two parts, and I'll say <laughs> no and yes. <laughs> uh, so, y- no to the dark ages? No and, to the dark
3: ages. And, and yes to yeah.
1: poverty. Okay. Uh, late last year, Congress reached a bipartisan budget deal that lifted a ban on petroleum exports and extended solar and wind power tax credits for five years. Georgia Hursty, good deal or bad deal?
4: I don't know enough about it.
1: Brendan Steele, exporting petroleum and extending renewable power tax credits. Good deal? Good deal. Tim Christopher, uh, Some brown, some green. Uh I'd come down slightly on the side of bad deal. Um, Tim to Christopher, if you had to do it over again, would you bid on those natural gas leases in Utah knowing you would spend two years in prison? Yes. Um, Georgia Hursty, did you tell your parents you were going to hang off the bridge <laughs> to stop an oil rig before you did it?
4: Uh, I told them, I told my father that I loved him. <laughs> 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 you can't really tell all the details. <laughs>
1: Uh, okay, uh, Brendan Steele, Future Five Hundred sometimes apologizes for, apologizes for fossil fuel companies. No, or false. Uh, Georgia Hursty, do you have friends who disagree with you on climate and fossil fuels? Yes. Tim Christopher, do you have friends who disagree with you on climate and fossil fuels? Yes. Brendan Steele. Friends know, family, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, how'd they do? I think that's the end of our lightning round. I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a round. Um...
4: And now, here's a climate one minute. Maria Gunno is a coal miner's granddaughter. She lives on a West Virginia farm that's been in her family for three generations. When runoff from mountaintop removal polluted her wells and streams, she fought back for cleaner, safer mining practices.
0: Gunno hadn't planned on taking on the coal industry, but as they found out, she was more than equal to the task. I didn't really get into fighting the industry the industry took me
4: on.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I tended to my family property. Uh, That's what I done. Uh, And in doing so... um, I realized in 2001 that I was going to have to fight mountaintop removal in order to protect this property. And uh, it, it just seemed like an astronomical task. Um, and it has been. But, yeah, they took me on. Uh, yeah, they challenged me. Uh, and my love for my property is, is what pushes me forward. And were you threatened? I've been threatened many times, yes. And my children overheard these threats. My son was only... Uh, 16, 17 years old. And he was in the last years of school when he looks at me and says, Mom, I can't go to sleep. I heard what they said at the football game. They're going to burn us out tonight. Well, I, uh, that's when we realized that we're going to have to have security in here. Did you ever think of
1: giving up? No. Moving? No. Do you think they knew who they were messing with?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> Maria Gunna
4: was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize in 2009, and she told her story at Climate One last
0: year. Now back to our live program with Greg Dalton at the Commonwealth Club.
1: Brendan Steele, uh, Future 500 is working with some Republican donors who are coming out of the Mm -hmm. closet on climate. So tell us about Jay Faison, Trammell Crow and some of the other people you're working with.
3: They are, so J. on Trammell, S. Crow, and Andy Sabin are three billionaire donors to the Republican Party, major donors, and they are all, as I would say, rapidly pro-climate. They've not been aligned with the Republican Party on climate and environmental issues, and for most of their lives, they've been mostly lone wolves uh, on the issue and in the party. Um, it's been fascinating to see uh, how they perceive their limitations as donors. Sort of being a non-billionaire, I perceive a billionaire donor sort of having limitless power, but it's been fascinating to see both in the the oil industry and in the donor class the the perceived and real limitations to power. Um, It's been over the last few years that these three donors have come to know each other and are beginning to strategize about how they can influence the party to change. Um, you've seen on the news, for example, Andy Sabin has been working behind the, the well now flailing Jeb Bush campaign to make climate an issue, not a campaign issue, but one that if he were elected would be a priority for his administration. Um, we've seen Tram S. Crow re-engage the party, re-engage some of his donations, but with the requirement of each of his donations that certain individuals within the GOP um, have meetings, interact with climate advocates of his choice. And so it's been fascinating to see this part of the of the donor class of the party begin to mobilize in favor of climate.
1: Have they had any influence yet? I mean, at the federal level, mm-hmm. that's pretty tough. If they, where have they had any influence? You know, I, I
3: think time has been too short to see, especially on the climate issue. Um, you know, Andy Saban has worked mostly on water issues and, and uh, uh, conservation issues across the globe and has had more success there. But Jay Faison's operation is, is brand spanking new. It's, it's a really short amount of time to judge results.
1: He's pledged, uh, he's a North Carolina entrepreneur who's pledged $175 million uh, to work on climate, something like the, the Tom Steyer mm-hmm. of the right. Uh, Tim DeChristopher, uh, do you, uh, what do you think of engagement with Republicans like that? Or do you want to do away with the Republican Party like you'd want to do away with the oil companies? <laughs>
2: um, I don't necessarily want to do away with the Republican Party. Um, you know, I think, I think engagement with grassroots conservatives is, is very productive, you know, I I spent uh, most of my years as an activist in Utah, which is uh, not quite as progressive as here in San Francisco. (laughs) Um, In fact, you you said said that— And I actually had a great relationship with with a lot of conservatives in Utah um, and found a lot of common ground. But I think that was more um, addressing the the grassroots folks on the right— that I think there's much more of a potential there. I mean, I don't think that the left-right spectrum of our political system is really realistic. To me, it's more like a steep pyramid where a lot of us at the bottom have more common ground on mm-hmm. either the left or the right than we do with the folks up at the top. Um, and and I think particularly at this point when it's, it's abundantly clear that it's too late for any amount of emissions reductions to limit climate change to a point that that is not extremely catastrophic that that has um a serious level of hardships that are that are now inevitable um you know i think organizing on climate change at this point um, has to take into account the fact that we are going down a a rocky and chaotic road of of extreme change and so it becomes all the more important who's steering the ship as we go down that course. And and what kind of power structures do we want to have in place when we go down that desperate path? Um, who do we want to, to be holding power and calling the shots?
1: Georgia Hurstie, uh, uh Tim Christopher mentioned a rocky road. I had a conversation recently with a friend, small business owner in San Francisco, who said, all my liberal friends in the Bay Area are hypocrites. They pretend to care about climate. They fly in airplanes. They ride-in taxis, do you think that we can really address this climate issue and pretend that if we just put a little solar, buy an electric car, we can live our lives and, and still be go along our merry way? Or is it going to require some lifestyle change?
4: I think that it will necessarily require lifestyle change as things become as we go down that road. However, I don't think, this comes up a lot, and I think you mentioned it earlier when you talked about the lack of choices, and so there's, while lifestyle activism and the choices that we make in our individual lives are important, um, there's also a system that's rigged against us and corporations and rich people who influence the political and cultural framework of our country so much that we're left without options, and so really being able to address That So, yes, maybe that we're hypocrites in that way, but I think that the conversation should be about the bigger framework that we're operating under and the confines that this kind of hyper-capitalism that we live in now, where... The people who have the most power, where where the power is concentrated, is what dictates the rest life for the rest of us. Is really where the conversation needs to be.
1: Like that lifestyle activism, um, Tim to Christopher, are is the middle class in denial? Climate conscious people are they going to have to make more sacrifices and changes than they like to believe?
2: I think it's more than the middle class that's in, in denial. I think it's I think it's all of us in one way or another. Um, you know, I mean, even even though I said earlier that. Um, I think we have a lot of renewable energy technologies that can meet our needs. I don't think there's, there's any energy technology that can produce enough material goods to meet our human and emotional needs. And as long as that's the mission of our economy, to fulfill our spiritual and emotional needs with consumer goods, um, we're, we're never going to get there. And we're always going to have uh, an ecologically insane kind of economy. So so that 's actually I think a fundamental shift to towards a society that starts meeting its human and emotional needs with human relationships um, at, rather than then trying to identify ourselves only as consumers um, and find our self worth in our material consumption and that sort of thing um, that 's going to have to shift um, you know but I think the positive thing on that side is that. We've never had an energy source that has been able to do that. That's always been a failed mission of our economy that, has ne- that hasn't actually made people happier anyway. Um, you know, that that's, that's always led to dissatisfaction by trying to, to fulfill that spiritual part of ourselves with consumer goods. So I think that's, that's kind of a positive shift.
1: I remember Bill McKibben writing that one of the major, I mean, accomplishments of the last few decades is building bigger houses further apart and wealth (laughs) has gone up and happiness has gone down. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. I'm an artist and philosopher of climate art. Um, Tim, you mentioned your uh, origin story, I suppose, with uh, Terry Root being
2: more honest with you and describing your own period of despair and and coming out of that. Uh, So my question is about courage, honesty and despair. Um, there tends t- there's a tendency for us, particularly climate activists, to avoid anything that might possibly lead anybody into despair. And so we're, I think, not quite honest with ourselves about the scale of our issue. Um, and the trope is, well, if anyone goes into despair, they'll just be inactive.
1: You've proven that to be otherwise. And I wonder whether you could comment about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, that's something that, that I've spent a lot of time thinking and, and talking about um, and these things that are called negative emotions in, in our society, like like sadness and despair and fear and anger, um, you know, I really think that they actually have a critical role to play um, and, and can help ground us in reality. Um, and I think particularly with despair, I think it takes a lot of effort to, to deny despair. And, and I see a lot of folks in the climate movement that, that wastes so much, so much of their efforts Fighting off despair and um, and I think that when we stop wasting our efforts on fighting that off and acknowledge that as like an honest part of ourselves um, and and an honest part of who we are at this point in time, um, we can move forward much more productively and and when we 're honest with each other, we stop we stop pretending and making each other feel crazy because the fact is that. A lot of people are feeling those things, and, and when we repress them because we're told that we're not supposed to have despair and we're not supposed to have anger, when we repress them, then other people think, who are feeling that inside but not seeing it, honored by anyone else, they think, oh, something must be wrong with me. I must be a crazy person, um, you know, which is extremely demoralizing, um, but everybody's feeling like something must be wrong with them because they're feeling what nobody is willing to talk about. Um, and, and I think our challenges are so great in this movement that, that we can't afford to just have like, the convenient side of people in this movement um, and in this broader work. Uh, I think we, we need to be willing to, to be full people, to bring our full selves, including our anger and our sadness and our despair. Um, and and mobilize all of that strength that comes from it towards towards this challenge.
1: Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Wayne Roth. I think of myself as a climate activist, but in front of you, I don't think I'm doing as much as I can and would like to do more. That despair that you've gone through, I think I've gone through that. I I don't know how to get people to recognize just how bad we are disturbing the planet's geological and climate systems, and I'm frustrated with that. Uh, and perhaps you can help me if you will talk more about the Climate Disobedience Center, because that may be a, an organization that I would like to donate and some of my time and energy towards. Uh,
2: yeah, and I actually think the, those two issues are, are linked. You know, my my answer to that first part of how to get people to realize how serious this is, the, actually the best strategy that I know of is civil disobedience. Um, be, I think it's a, f- a phenomenal tool for education, because we can we can throw out lots of facts and figures about how serious the climate crisis is, um, and generally those kind of bounce off people. All the all the folks who could be deeply motivated by facts and figures, I think, have been motivated for a long time, and that turns out to be a small minority. Um, I think most people are moved more by human stories and what they see other people doing, and and civil disobedience is a way of saying that. The climate crisis is so serious that, that I am going to put myself in a vulnerable position to do something about it. And I think our, our vulnerability has a tremendous power to open people up, to rattle them out of their everyday lethargic apathy of their consumer lives and, and, and create a strong desire for them to connect to that vulner, vulnerable person that they see in front of them. Um, and, and that opens them up to, to really be awakened. And so the Climate Disobedience Center is an organization that is trying to facilitate more of that, trying to um, harness a lot of the, the growing commitment in the climate movement to take bold actions and, and use that to really tap that full potential of civil disobedience to arouse the conscience of a community. Um, and so we're, we're supporting activists in any way that they need to be supported, whether that's um, training and action support or whether that's trial support um, legal support, financial support, whatever it might be, um, we kind of go wherever we're invited to to help people realize that full potential of civil disobedience.
1: We're talking about uh, climate disobedience at Climate One. We have a few minutes left. Let's go to our next audience. Question.
0: Hi, I'm Paul Passimino. I'm with uh, Amazon Watch. Um, I want to applaud your your activism, both of you, and remind people that in addition to these cases where people are putting themselves and their lives on the line, many of the communities that we partner with in the Amazon and elsewhere who are on the front lines of climate change are basically facing these life or death struggles every day. These fossil fuel companies are at their doorsteps trying to destroy their existence. And so, you know, we're fortunate here, but there are people who are fighting this fight for us. And it frustrates me because we accompany these these indigenous leaders to roadshows like the ones that you went to, to auctions to present their truth to the people who are buying and selling their their land, and yet the climate movement says, don't talk about protest, don't talk, don't say climate change, don't say this, don't say that, just say pollution or health, etc. And they want us to basically try to make the message so that it can be received as broadly as possible, and we will grow the movement and for me, that frustrates me from my experience, and I, I assume that it does you, and I'd love to hear from both Tim and Georgia about what their reaction is.
4: Um, yeah, I think that certainly, as I was talking about before, like switching the lens to one of environmental justice rather than environmentalism and actually talking about the reality of what's going on, the suffering that's going on, the risks that people are taking, and the privilege that we have to choose to get arrested, to choose to do actions when people are being you know, murdered or fighting these fights every single day, and I think... I think it's very important for the climate movement to come over to the side of that environmental justice lens where we're willing to talk about the people of color, the communities around the world that are struggling and that are on the front lines and that it's much more about people in that way um, than necessarily about trees and water. I mean, interconnected, of course. Let's go to our next question. Um, I'm on the divestment campaign at the University of San Francisco, and it's a question for all of you. Just tips and what you honestly think about the divestment movement.
1: So, Brendan Steele, divestment, you actually advocate for constructive engagement with Mm -hmm. companies, so tell us about, is divestment a good idea?
3: I think the divestment movement has changed the cultural narrative. It has been extremely powerful symbolically, and I think it's been important to bring companies to the table and open up the space for a price on carbon. Uh, One thing I will say is that we see an untapped coalition. Jay Faison, who you've mentioned earlier, uh, ExxonMobil, Citizens Climate Lobby, and James Hansen all advocate the same climate policy if you look at it. There's room to advance that even through the divestment movement. But the actual process of divesting from companies, I'm concerned, actually disempowers the climate movement because you're dropping the share price, and having people who care less then buy in.
1: So selling fossil Mm -hmm. fuel stocks is a bad idea. Tim Tim Christopher?
3: Um, I think the divestment
2: movement, first off, has been incredibly important as an entry ramp for young people into the climate movement, whereas previously, I think the easy kind of entrance ramp was through changes in consumer behavior, and divestment movement has been encouraging young people to start thinking about the institutions that they're a part of and thinking about things systemically and leveraging that institutional and system power, um, which I think is going to yield great benefits with this whole generation of young activists who are thinking about things systemically from, from an early age. And I think they're going to be a really powerful generation of activists because of that. In, t- in terms of divestment itself, um, I think it, it clearly already is having an impact with with companies like NRG citing that as a major pressure source for why they're shifting their their model. Um, and you know the the company engagement model I think has was was used um, by really powerful institutions. You know, like the Rockefeller family that tried to, tried to shift Exxon through shareholder engagement um, and, and failed and never had any success. Um, I think shareholder engagement can make a difference at the margins with, like, some worker policies and that sort of thing. But when it comes to the core business model of a company who owns trillions of dollars worth worth of assets that are still in the ground, there's not going to be any level of shareholder engagement that is going to convince them to abandon those assets and leave them in the ground.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
2: Uh, My question is for Georgia or Tim. Is in my mind, climate organizers have this daunting task of undermining the fossil fuel industry as well as engaging a, a, a population of ordinary folks who don't work for organizations like Greenpeace or uh, other big organizations or in government or corporations who feel powerless and are disengaged. And I'm wondering what y'all think is the best, some of the best pathways to engage folks to just not just turn out in large numbers. Like it's great to have people turn out. For a big protest over a day, but also engage people to take like higher risk uh, activity, like the two of you did.
1: Georgia,
4: yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the grassroots movements, um, uh, the grass, grassroots organizing that's happened, particularly in the Bay Area, where people have shown up. Um, in all of the kind of solidarity of issues. So there'll be people that come to the warehouse, for example, that are working on race, that are oriented toward the environment, that are oriented toward gender, and build this campaign and can show up for each other as allies, can show up as activists, can show up as legal support... And what has been amazing over the course of the last two years in that space is to watch how people get increasingly more empowered in that solidarity, and then more empowered to take action, both for the issue that the issue that they're particularly fighting on, but then also taking action in the way that all of the issues are connected to one another. So I think giving people like a longer term, whether like strategic framework and the The interconnectedness of all of those issues where they feel like they're part of a community and growing together with every action they take has what really makes people more not only willing to take those risks, but more empowered by it.
1: Uh, we have to end it there. We've been talking about climate disobedience and climate change at Climate One with Tim DeChristopher, founder of the Climate Disobedience Center, Georgia Hursty, National Warehouse Program Manager with Greenpeace, and Brendan Steele, Director of Stakeholder Engagement at Future 500. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to this and other Climate One podcasts on iTunes at the Climate One site, climateone.org. I'd like to thank our audience in the room and listening online. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.